0: It is difficult to truly appreciate the scale of Operation Barbarossa, Adolf Hitler's invasion of Stalin's Soviet Union. Beginning on June 22nd, 1941, 3.8 million German and pro-Axis troops flooded across the border in occupied Poland and went charging headlong across the Soviet Union. They appeared unstoppable, as they claimed hundreds of thousands of square miles of land, cleansing it of those they deemed undesirable by Nazi ideology, so that it could one day be colonized and used to feed and fuel the Nazi empire. So close were the Germans to succeeding in defeating the Soviets, that Army Group Center, under the command of Fedor von Bock, reached tantalizingly close to Moscow itself, but it was here that fate would intervene. The Germans had not fully accounted for the size of the campaign they would be undertaking and supply issues began to plague their advance, slowing them down time and time again. This allowed the Soviets to organize their resistance and further inhibit their progress. But what ultimately saved Moscow was the arrival of the brutal Russian winter, freezing the war in place for several months. With the onset of spring, 1942, the war in the East was ready to begin again but the problem of supplies, particularly oil, was forever a worry for the German high command. And so they planned for an offensive that, if successful, would not only alleviate their fuel shortage, but also deny the Soviets their own fuel stocks. Part of that plan involved a city on the edge of the Volga River in Eastern Ukraine. This city, formerly known as Volgagrad, had since been bestowed with the name of the Soviet leader himself, And while few people before the war knew it even existed, in the decades since, its name has adorned almost every history book of an example of what occurs when two powerful forces clash and refuse to submit. This is the story of Stalingrad. Welcome to Wars of the World. Nazi German society, despite its demands for obedience and conformity upon its citizens, relished its heroes. It is perhaps because of the demands of the national socialist ideals to conform that individuals or groups who achieved this status were so admired, their commitment to the Nazi dream being such that they were elevated in status above their comrades who sought to be like them. The problem for said heroes, however, was that they had to then continuously prove themselves to be worthy of their position almost on a daily basis. And in the Wehrmacht, that meant meeting the enemy with enthusiasm and without hesitation. Just who the enemy were was, of course, dictated by Nazi ideology and was far-reaching on the Eastern Front. A Soviet soldier armed with a rifle, a partisan saboteur with a crowbar to damage a railway line, a Jewish mother and her children they were all the same in the twisted minds of the nazi leadership and this belief had to be embraced at every opportunity that was presented to a hero of hitler's army one of hitler's heroic units was the wehrmacht sixth army serving with army group south under the command of field marshal walter von reichenau formed on october 10, 1939 At full strength, the 6th Army numbered 285,000 men along with their assorted vehicles and field guns and had earned themselves a fearsome reputation against the Western Allies during the German blitzkrieg into France, Belgium, and the Low Countries. The 6th Army then helped spearhead Army Group South's invasion of the Soviet Union, becoming the most highly decorated army for gallantry in the Wehrmacht, However, this success glossed over its participation in the brutal and cruel role it played in eradicating all enemies conceived of in the Nazi mind. Members of the Sixth Army were frequent participants in countless murders committed by German forces in the Soviet Union, often on orders from Reichenau, but also at times by soldiers on a break from their combat duties. Hitler had promised that no German soldier would be held accountable for his behavior against the Bolsheviks, And for many in the Sixth Army, this was permission from the Führer to kill at will for the most trivial of reasons. Like the rest of the Wehrmacht in the East, Army Group South had endured a brutal winter over late 1941. Then on January 12, 1942, while the Sixth Army was located in and around Poltava in Western Ukraine, the 57-year-old von Reichenau elected to fight off the cold, which was well below freezing with a morning run. Later, at lunch, some of his officers noted that he appeared unwell before he suddenly collapsed, clutching his chest as he suffered a heart attack. Upon hearing this news, Hitler immediately ordered that he be returned to Berlin for treatment, and so, still unconscious, he was strapped to an armchair and loaded aboard a Dornier Do-17 bomber. However, while attempting to land at Lemberg in eastern Ukraine to refuel, the Dornier crashed, killing the 6th Army commander. However, before his death, von Reichenau had taken a liking to one General Friedrich Paulus and had appointed him as his successor as the commander of the Sixth Army. Paulus had served in the First World War and had fought alongside Rommel during the opening of the Western Front. But unlike the man who had come to be known as the Desert Fox, Paulus had failed to distinguish himself in combat. Instead of dramatic successes, he had instead overseen a competent and consistent campaign, commanding men of the 13th Infantry Regiment. Considered rather standoffish by his men, history would prove he was in fact one of the few senior German officers who truly understood the importance of the condition and morale of his men, as opposed to the blind loyalty expected by other commanders who saw them as tools. After the fall of France, Paulus was reassigned to Berlin, where he helped in the planning for Army Group South's campaign in the Soviet Union, looked upon favorably by von Reichenau, His selection for his replacement was mildly controversial amongst the ranks, with Paulus lacking the experience of other potential candidates while seemingly not as committed to the Nazi cause as his predecessor, reversing orders by von Reichenau regarding the harsh treatment of the Soviet undesirables and forbidding his men to go off on campaigns of eradication without authority. He did, however, assign troops to assist the dedicated murder squads rowing behind the front lines on orders from the head of the SS heinrich himmler Paulus's first order of business was to get his new command through the remaining months of the soviet winter and ensure it was ready for the fresh offensives that would be no doubt coming in spring however it would be the soviets who would strike first and on may 12, 1942 soviet forces under the command of marshal timoshenko attacked Paulus's army near kharkov over three days of bitter fighting the 6th Army sustained heavy casualties in a series of pitched holding actions attempting to stem the advance of the Soviets until the Luftwaffe were able to achieve local air superiority over the Red Air Force and begin a series of crushing airstrikes against Timoshenko's forces. On May 17th, the 1st Panzer Army counterattacked from the south of the Soviet forces, followed two days later by Paulus's 6th Army, which counterattacked from the north, as the two powerful German forces connected, the Soviets were trapped in a classic pincer movement that saw over a quarter of a million of their soldiers encircled and then beaten into defeat. During the whole campaign, the Soviets sustained over 270,000 casualties killed, captured, or missing, compared to the Wehrmacht's less than 30,000. Having repelled the Soviet offensive, Paulus returned to preparing for the 6th Army's participation in the German Army's own coming offensive. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit the Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Having seen his men's lightning advance across the Western Soviet Union almost frozen in place during the winter of late 1941 and early 42, and with the United States now committed against him in North Africa and Western Europe along with the British, Hitler wasted no time in formulating his summer offensives against the Soviets, hoping to return to the days of rapid advances east. One of his major objectives was to capture the Soviet oil fields in the Caucasus region around the city of Baku in present day Azerbaijan. Not only would this give Germany the oil it desperately needed to continue the war, but it was also responsible for some 80% of Soviet oil production and thus would be a major blow to Stalin's armored units and air force. Hitler dubbed the offensive Fall Blau, meaning Case Blue, and it would be the goal of Army Group South, now under the command of Fedor von Bock, who had been given a new opportunity to prove himself to Hitler after failing to capture Moscow. Of course, it was not simply enough to take control of the oil fields. They then had to get the oil pumping back into the German supply chain. For this task, specialized oil brigades were formed in Romania, whose task it would be to build the pipelines to transport the siphoned oil off Soviet soil and maintain the oil fields once their Soviet administrators were no longer in control. But it wasn't just oil Case Blue was concerned with. As its empire grew across Europe and with the impact of Allied air raids, food shortages were predicted to hit Nazi Germany in the coming years. Just two days before the start of Operation Barbarossa, Nazi theorist and ideologue Alfred Rosenberg outlined that in order for long-term German success, the Wehrmacht must also make capturing the fertile agricultural fields of the southwestern region of the Soviet Union a high priority. In his words, this region would become the breadbasket of Nazi Germany. It seems incredible now, given what would follow, but at this early juncture, capturing the city with Stalin's name on it was not seen as a high priority. Instead, the attack was intended to damage the industrial city's ability to manufacture war materials, such as weapons and vehicles, draw Soviet forces away from advance towards the oil fields, and disrupt the vital rail and river transport links between Soviet forces in the North and South. However, the propaganda value of capturing the city bearing Stalin's name was not lost on Hitler, and as plans for the offensive unfolded, he placed ever greater importance on achieving that aim dreaming of the insult it would be to Stalin for there to be a Nazi swastika raised high above the smoldering remains of his city. However, as the preparations got underway, many of the Wehrmacht commanders expressed their concerns over the plan. The front line, which Army Group South would be establishing was huge, stretching well over a thousand miles, placing an enormous burden on the German supply chain, a facet of the Nazi war machine that was already starting to falter, and was also one of the main reasons for the offensive in the first place. Additionally, there was always the risk of the Germans spreading themselves too thinly and offering the Soviets the opportunity to punch through where the line was thinnest and encircle pockets of German forces. The Germans were all too aware of the effectiveness of such tactics, having employed them successfully on numerous occasions, including during the aforementioned Battle of Kharkov in May. Von Bock was especially critical of this part of the plan, as it relied heavily on non-German units, such as the Romanians and Hungarians to cover the Wehrmacht's flanks as they advanced and who had proven themselves less capable and even lesser committed than the Germans during the whole Eastern enterprise. To address both concerns, a great deal of faith was placed in the Luftwaffe's Luftflotte 4, which as well as providing close air support to the advancing German forces, could also help block any Soviet breakthrough away from the main German force, and provide logistical support by flying in supplies. This was in addition to the Luftwaffe's fighters providing air cover against Soviet planes, whose efforts, despite holding a numerical advantage over the Germans, were often rendered ineffective by poor tactics and an inflexible command structure. Under the command of Austrian-born General Alexander Lohr, Luftflotte IV had fought an intense war prior to June 1942 including wide-scale bombing campaigns against Warsaw in Poland in 1939. Morale was still generally high, particularly amongst the fighter pilots who saw the Eastern Front as a way to quickly increase their scores against inferior Soviet pilots. But fatigue amongst the men and their equipment was increasingly an underlying problem, with the Luftwaffe force having been largely denied significant periods of rest since the invasion began. Nevertheless, over 1,500 German aircraft were available to support Case Blue at the beginning of the campaign. Case Blue would function in two key areas. The first was to the north of the objective oil fields, securing the banks of the Don River and then pressing on to Volga, thus securing the northern flank for the southern flank to advance on the oil fields. Paulus's 6th Army would be tasked with advancing on Stalingrad as part of the Northern Flank Advance with the aim of denying the Soviets their transport links south. As the offensive drew ever closer, German General George Stumer, commander of the 40th Panzer Corps, disobeyed standing orders from Hitler and deliberately distributed an outline of the offensive to a number of his subordinates. He disobeyed Hitler, who wanted absolute secrecy of the plan even from many division level commanders because German military tradition dictated the sharing of operation plans so that if the chain of command was disrupted in battle, the plan would still go ahead like a well-oiled machine. However, after a German officer crash-landed across Soviet lines and was shot, the Soviets retrieved the plans from his dead body. Thus, almost on the eve of the offensive, the Soviets had been handed Hitler's entire plan including annotated maps covering the deployment of German and Axis units to the Volga and into the Caucasus region. This naturally sent alarm bells ringing amongst the German leadership. Stumer was recalled to Berlin, where a furious Hitler insisted he be court-martialed for his blatant disregarding of standing orders regarding battle plans. He was narrowly spared prison or worse when several leading Nazis, including Hermann Göring, pleaded his case. Instead, his fate was to replace Rommel as commander of the doomed Africa Corps in its final days. On October 24, 1942, British troops opened fire on a German staff car seen traversing near the German front lines in Egypt. It was Stumas, and the British recovered the dead general's body after his driver left him behind as he beat a hasty retreat. As preparations continued with Case Blue, The question that concerned those briefed either officially or unofficially on the plan was what would the Soviets do to counter them given that they knew the Germans' objectives. They needn't have worried themselves, however. Demonstrating his typical high level of paranoia, Stalin dismissed the captured plans as little more than a German ruse given how, in his mind, the plans were simply handed to the Soviets. He believed they were intended to convince him to divert forces away from defending Moscow which he reasoned was Hitler's true objective and that Army Group South was merely a supporting player in that goal. In actuality, the reverse was the case, with Hitler ordering the troops on the Moscow front line to hold the line while forces once committed against the Soviet capital were deployed south to assist in capturing the Caucasus region. In the final days before the ambitious offensive was to begin, The logistics effort to support it and relocate the necessary forces to their staging areas went into overdrive. Trains riding on Russian rails carried troops, tanks, armored vehicles, and all their necessary supplies from the West. But still, the problem of resupply after the offensive began gnawed away at German commanders, who nonetheless decided to put their faith in Hitler one more time, the Führer having not failed them yet. On June 28, 1941, the offensive began when the 4th Panzer Army, under the command of the skilled General Hermann Hoth, began their charge towards their objective. Supported by intense close air support, Hoth's 4th Panzer Army made a rapid advance east as the Soviets, who by now had learned not to get caught up in battles with the Germans where they could be encircled, conducted a less than orderly retreat, scrambling to try and maintain a defensive line. However, Lure's aircraft continually succeeded in driving a wedge through any Soviet formation that stood in their way. Eventually the situation got so dire that the Soviets were forced to relocate their headquarters to Kastonia to protect it from German air and armored units pouring east. On June 30th, Stalin felt the situation warranted the head of the Red Army's Armored Corps, N. Fedorenko, to take command of the 1,000 plus tanks in the region, ranging from light T-60s up to the heavy KV series to repel Hoth's forces. However, despite this paper advantage, the Soviet tank units struggled to translate into anything meaningful, seldom appearing in any significant numbers to counter the orderly advance of the German panzers and Tigers. On July 7th, German forces began occupying large areas of Voronezh, including most importantly, the series of bridges crossing the river. The Soviets attempted to counterattack, but it was hastily organized and ended in disaster, while another Soviet attack west between Voronezh and Kursk was halted by heavy German artillery and air support. But the Soviets were not done yet and threw more and more men at the city. Hoff, meanwhile, found his tanks waiting for supporting infantry to arrive, who were delayed by 48 hours. Fighting in the city soon ground to a bitter slogfest as buildings were reduced to rubble, offering ideal locations for the Soviets to set traps and provide cover for snipers and machine gun nests, forcing the Germans to begin making widespread use of flamethrowers and high explosive shells to clear buildings of their opponents. With the infantry now arriving to take over the fighting, Hoth's panzer army was now to turn southeast towards Stalingrad and support Paulus's sixth army advancing on the city. It was at this point, however, that Germany's gains began to slow down as two key factors would come into play that would inhibit their progress. As was feared before Case Blue even began, the German supply chain just wasn't up to the task of keeping pace with German advances, particularly since Soviet forces were in widespread retreat, their own cohesion having broken down. German forces found themselves in some areas 10 days ahead of schedule. And as a result, supplies, especially of fuel, were often slow to catch up. And on more than one occasion, they were forced to simply hold their positions. Aircraft such as the Junkers Ju 52 transport were used to try and speed up the process, but they could only carry so much and required the Germans to find or even build suitable landing sites. The other problem that emerged in this period was the growing frustration between von Bock and his commanders with Hitler and the German high command back in Berlin. Traditionally, German and before that, Prussian commanders had been given an objective, a broad outline of how to achieve that objective and the relevant supplies they would require. This gave them a lot of freedom, and indeed this had allowed generals such as Rommel to show their prowess as military leaders in the early campaigns of the war. Now, however, Hitler was himself taking much more of an active role in orchestrating the offensive, but Hitler was never a general. As such, von Bock found himself clashing with a former corporal on how to proceed next. Hitler wanted to proceed with the second phase of Case Blue with the 1st Panzer Army advancing from the south and meeting up with Hoth's army. Von Bock disagreed, however, because quite simply, he knew the Red Army had largely withdrawn from the area and so the Soviet casualties Hitler dreamed of wouldn't be. He was also aware that the Soviets were reorganizing at new positions along the Voronezh Front, and he wanted to crush these Soviet forces first before advancing on Stalingrad. But this meant delays, which Hitler was not happy with. For his part, Hitler was frustrated that von Bock was still fighting in Voronezh, feeling this was not a primary objective and served as a distraction, while at the same time, feeling he was being overly cautious in his handling of the operation and not seizing opportunities that presented themselves. Hitler was thus rapidly losing confidence in von Bock's ability to command Army Group South during this critical offensive that would have repercussions for the war far beyond the battlefield. Hitler decided that the best way to move forward would be to divide Army Group South into two smaller groups, Group A would be commanded by Marshal Wilhelm List, whose forces include the German 1st Panzer Army, the 11th and 17th Armies, and the Romanian 3rd Army, and they were assigned to the southern region to capture the oil fields themselves. Meanwhile, Group B was assigned to continue the fight to secure the northern flank, and would remain under the command of von Bock and included Paulus's sixth army who were now ordered to attack Stalingrad in conjunction with the main offensive south with flanking support from Romanian, Hungarian and Italian troops. Believing that the Soviets had retreated to the lower Don River, north of Rostov, Hitler ordered Hoth's fourth panzer army south behind Paulus's army, advancing on Stalingrad to support von Kleist's panzers in encircling the enemy there. But of course, there was no significant enemy to encircle. Instead, moving Hoth's forces to the Southern Front took them out of the main fight and tied up large numbers of resources, as well as congesting the roads and railways needed to support the move south. Traffic jams, in fact, were becoming a major problem for the Germans. They had expected to fight a dug-in enemy, but instead the speed of their advance meant that German forces were getting caught up in one another's movements on the few usable roads in the region. At the same time, Hitler began to view the capture of Stalingrad as an increasingly important objective. His obsession with the city was already taking hold. Separated from the Red Army by rolling countryside that obscured their maneuvering and with heavy fighter cover, Paulus and his comrades were confident they could start the offensive against Stalingrad on July 17th without detection. However, with less than 48 hours to go, advanced elements of the Soviet 147th Rifle Division, supported by a company of T-34 medium tanks, approached German forces near Morozovsky train station. German infantry seized nearby dwellings and began fortifying them while the panzers and other vehicles were still being unloaded and prepared for combat. At 1740 hours on July 16th, three T-34s and two T-60s approached from the nearby Morozov farm as they probed the area for German forces. They were quickly fired upon by the Germans. However, they lacked anti-tank guns powerful enough to penetrate the thick sloping armor of the Soviet T-34, and so were themselves destroyed without loss although one T-34 did suffer a broken down gearbox and had to be towed back to Soviet lines. Believing this small reconnaissance unit was the only armor in the area, the Germans dispatched four tanks and supporting anti-tank guns in pursuit. Instead, however, they found two whole Soviet tank companies in front of them, and despite a valiant effort where they destroyed a T-34 and disabled two others, the Soviets destroyed two German tanks, captured a third after it had been disabled and destroyed several anti-tank guns. Formally beginning on July 17th, Paulus made his push for Stalingrad, having been reinforced with, among other units, the 24th Panzer Division and their assortment of various Panzer types, bringing his army's strength close to 400,000 men. However, his army was by no means immune from the supply issue that was draining the Wehrmacht elsewhere on the Eastern Front, and this slowed his advance on the city. Furthermore, generals such as von Kleist wondered why Hoth's panzers weren't ordered to head straight into Stalingrad with Paulus, since they were literally crossing paths anyway, but the Fuhrer could not be questioned. On the same day, Hitler relieved Bock as commander of Army Group B, replacing him with Maximilian von Weichs. Having lost the confidence of the Führer, Bock never again occupied a senior command position in the Wehrmacht for the remainder of the war, instead going into quiet retirement. Recognizing that the city was now a German objective, Soviet Marshal Timoshenko signed directive number 23, in which he outlined simply that the task of the Soviets in the coming battle was to simply retain the Stalingrad front at all costs. However, Timoshenko's inability to hold off the Germans following the offensive was punished by Stalin. When on July 21st, he replaced him with V. N. Gordov. Meanwhile, Paulus's force was in heavy combat with the Soviet 62nd Army and was on the verge of destroying its right flank when the Soviets launched a powerful counterattack, operating without air cover, Soviet tanks were themselves bombed time and time again as they attempted to circle around Paulus's left rear flank, but through sheer tenacity and force of numbers, on July 29th, they began to threaten Paulus's force, which was now being caught in the middle of a pincer movement. The Soviets thus managed to put the 6th Army on the defensive, holding Paulus west of his objective albeit temporarily and it would take days of bitter fighting to get back on the march to Stalingrad, arriving on the outskirts of the city in late August. Stalin could now see the Germans' true objectives, and in particular, the advance on the city that he had bestowed his name upon. He could also see that the Red Army's retreat had surrendered huge areas of land to the Germans, already for comparatively little cost to either side, which to him meant that his forces were not fighting until the last for the motherland. Therefore, on July 28, 1942, he issued order number 227, putting an end to organized retreats. It read, the people of our country, for all the love and respect they have for the Red Army, are beginning to feel disappointment in it. They are losing faith in it, and many curse the Red Army for giving our people over to the yoke of the German oppressors while the army runs away to the east. Some foolish people at the front comfort themselves by saying that we can always retreat further east since we have much territory, much land and manpower, and that we will always have more than enough grain. They say this to excuse their shameful conduct at the front, but such talk is lies and falsehood and only helps our enemies. After the loss of the Ukraine, Russia, the Baltic lands, the Donbass, and other regions, we have much less territory, far fewer people, much less grain and metal, fewer factories and industrial plants. To retreat any further would be to ruin ourselves and our motherland. Every little scrap of land that we give up strengthens our enemy and weakens our defense our motherland. And so the time for retreating is over, not one step back. That must now be our watchword. With this one order, the Soviet leader had set the stage for the climactic battle of Stalingrad, which would come to symbolize the very struggle between Hitler's national socialism and Stalin's communism. It also sounded the death knell for thousands of his own soldiers, since for added insurance against retreat. Stalin's order called for machine gun teams to be established by the most reliable of his troops behind the advancing Soviet soldiers. If anyone turned back from an attack, then these machine gunners would wipe them out for their perceived cowardice, regardless if the odds of success against the German position was almost nil. Perhaps the most cynical aspect of Stalin's instructions was that not only were his soldiers not allowed to retreat, but neither were any civilians inside the city. Instead, they were put to use forming militias, building barricades and tank traps, and supporting the soldiers by bringing food and supplies, as well as continuing to produce weapons in the city's armament factories. Stalin also believed that by keeping civilians bottled up inside the city, that the Red Army soldiers would be inspired to fight harder for their protection. There was indeed still a passionate desire to resist amongst the Soviet soldiers, but confidence in their officers was at times fleeting, given the paranoia about their conduct that filtered down from the very top to the most lowly lieutenants. Stalin was acutely aware of how the Red Army's forebear, the Imperial Russian Army, had turned against the Tsar and his aristocracy in the First World War, spurred on by him and Lenin, and always feared that the same would now happen to his government. A consequence of this was a mistrust between the officers and their men, which sapped morale. Whether or not the Soviet soldiers believed in the ideals of communism, as much as was portrayed in Soviet propaganda, was down to each man's own conviction. What did spur them on, however, was the knowledge of what the Germans had done in the Soviet territory they had already captured. Mass murder and rape, even of children and the elderly, left the soldiers with burning hatred of the invaders and a deep desire to make sure the same didn't happen to their hometowns and cities. However, like the Germans, the titanic scale of the Eastern Front meant supply issues were forever a headache for the Soviets, made worse by the relocation of arms manufacturing to the east to keep them out of range of German bombers, this delaying the delivery of new weapons. The Western allies of Britain and the US helped shore up the shortfall in equipment, but the recent cancellation of Arctic convoys following the disaster of convoy PQ-17 meant that no more would be coming until the winter months, when darkness would conceal their approach from German aircraft. As such, Soviet equipment at Stalingrad in August of 1942 was a mess of old and new weapons, often scrounged from anywhere they could be found. Sometimes entire units would be equipped with one type of weapon, such as bolt action rifles or submachine guns. The rifles had excellent range, but a slow reload time, which was good for fighting down long streets, but almost useless in close quarter house to house combats. With the submachine gun, the situation was the reverse, but all of this was dependent, of course, on whether the men actually got a weapon at all. Famously, some units only received half of the weapons they required, and so the solution to this was to pair men up, one with a weapon and one with fresh bullets, who would pick up the weapon after the first man was shot. By August 23rd, the time for preparing the city to defend against Paulus's 6th Army, now supported by Hoth's 4th Panzer Army attacking the city from the south, had run out. However, as the Soviet defenders looked upon the mass of panzers and infantry that was approaching them, it was from the sky that the Germans would strike first. As had been the case during much of the offensive, the Luftwaffe had been simultaneously the spearhead of each offensive, blasting away at enemy forces ahead of the German thrust and the blocking force, helping to secure their flanks, often in conjunction with troops of German allied units. Alexander Law had by this time been relieved of command and reassigned to command the 12th Army. In his place was General von Richthofen, a cousin of the Great War's Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen, and himself a decorated ace of the conflict. Having become friends with Hermann Göring, he was invited to join the nascent Luftwaffe in 1933, where he was allowed to conduct experiments to improve close air support tactics, these being trialed in Spain and then Poland before they were perfected to an art by the time the invasion of France had begun richthofen was characterized by his men as an aggressive commander who threw himself into every aspect of operational flying and while he was confident in his own men's abilities he was not shy when it came to expressing his feelings if other commanders either in the air or on the ground were failing in their objectives his aggressive nature made him popular with the fuhrer but understandably he was despised by several german generals with he and hoth of the fourth panzer army having an especially fiery relationship to support a land thrust by paulus's spearhead into the city richthofen concocted a bombing operation where his aircraft would drop large numbers of both high explosive and incendiary weapons the latter intended to start fires that would spread quickly through the many wooden buildings that made up much of the suburban areas of the city as the bombs rained down the soldiers and civilians defending Stalingrad found themselves caught up in a firestorm where people literally choked to death as fires consumed all the oxygen inside shelters. The bombing was indiscriminate and laid waste to large areas around the city with casualty figures running in the tens of thousands. Coinciding with the opening of the air assault, Paulus's spearhead advanced on the city comprising of the 14th Panzer Corps on the right flank of the 51st Corps on the left. Their strike was swift and they encountered determined Soviet resistance almost every step of the way, but they quickly punched their way through to the northern side of the city, eventually reaching the Volga. It was a triumphant attack, but there was no time to celebrate as by the next day, Soviet forces comprising of the 62nd, 64th, and 1st Guards armies quickly filled up the void left behind them, blocking the path between them and the rest of Paulus' forces and seriously threatening them with destruction, unable to withdraw in any direction. Paulus immediately prepared a relief operation to rescue the trapped Germans. But again, Soviet troops forbidden from retreating put up a stiff resistance, seriously slowing progress. In the meantime, Luftwaffe 4 continued bombarding the city, hoping to smash the extensive Soviet defenses that had been prepared and also help keep Soviet troops off the surrounded German spearhead as much as possible. Realizing it would take several days to reach them now that Soviet forces had regrouped, the Luftwaffe was also forced to undertake supply drops to the encircled force to help keep them fighting while waiting for relief. On August 25th, von Richthofen decided to join his men on a bombing mission over the city, such is the low threat from Soviet fighters at this time. Flying in his personal aircraft, he is said to have watched the city burning with an enormous sense of satisfaction, relishing in its destruction like he had done over Warsaw, regardless of the civilian lives that were being lost as a result of the onslaught. Paulus then ordered another armored thrust into the city, led by the 48th Panzer Corps, Their objective was to link up with the encircled Germans and resupply them. However, during their advance, the panzers prove especially vulnerable to ambushes as they traverse the narrow streets of the bombed out and burning city. They reach the trapped Germans and deposit their supplies, but then retreat due to a lack of infantry to help fend off Soviet attacks within the city, fearing they too will become trapped. Elsewhere in the campaign to the south of the city, Hoth's 4th Panzer Army struck northwards toward the Volga, protected by Soviet's 51st and 57th Armies. Despite early gains, the tenacious Soviets managed to repel his army, forcing him to retreat and regroup, ready for the next push. However, perhaps becoming overly confident as a result of this success, or feeling that the 6th Army was the bigger threat, the Soviets withdrew some of the units on the southern flank of the city to the north, to help prevent Paulus from rescuing his encircled men. Sensing his opportunity, Hoth attacked again and started pushing the Soviets back into the embattled city, while after a week of bitter fighting and intense aerial bombardment by Luftwaffe IV, Paulus's forces finally linked up with the 14th Panzer and 51st Corps, sparing them from destruction. Unknown to anyone at the time, this opening round inside the city ominously foreshadowed the events that would follow. As the Germans pushed the Soviets back, they captured a handful of airfields and airstrips, which would go a long way to helping with their resupply issues. The most important of these airfields is the one at Pitomnik, which the Germans captured on September 3rd, located 15 kilometers west of the center of the city. It has a long concrete runway and the necessary infrastructure to handle large transport aircraft, including the four-engined Fokker Wolf FW200. In an effort to stem the tide of the German advance through the now ruined city, Stalin ordered in reinforcements in barges from across the eastern side of the Volga, but with the Luftwaffe controlling the skies, the river ran red with blood as the Soviet troops were strafed and bombed in their barges. As soon as they reached Stalingrad, they were often immediately thrown against the Germans in large human wave assaults with little more than a gun and a few rounds of ammunition if they were lucky. At this stage in the battle, the average life expectancy of a Soviet soldier once inside the city was measured in hours with more than 24 being the exception rather than the norm. However, once the Soviet soldiers survived this initial baptism of fire and became embedded into the battle, they found that the German bombing had an unforeseen advantage in their favor. The ruins of the buildings provided countless positions with which to hide in and ambush German troops or conceal snipers who could pick off German officers in the hope of disrupting the German unit's ability to function. Furthermore, the advantage offered by German armor was almost negated, as the streets were blocked by debris and Soviet barricades, making the fight for Stalingrad a predominantly infantry affair. However, the Germans were still pushing forward towards the Volga. On September 14th, the final German assault on the Volga began, and the next day, German troops passed the city's massive grain elevator. This imposing structure, measuring 90 meters long and 35 meters high, was barely two years old, having been completed in 1940 and abandoned by its staff who had joined in the city's defense. However, as German troops entered the area, Soviet Lieutenant Poliakov decided it would offer the ideal location with which to fortify his men's position and led 27 of them to occupy it, armed only with a few rifles, machine guns, and some mortars. Later in the afternoon, as the Germans realized what Polyakov was up to, they attacked with infantry and a handful of panzers, but incredibly, the Soviet troops managed to repel them. Amazingly, the Germans failed to suppress them the next day or the day after that. One German soldier named Wilhelm Hoffmann described how frustrating it was being unable to dislodge them. Writing in his journal, he remarked, "'The elevator is occupied not by men, but devils that no flames or bullets can destroy. Eventually, Stuka dive bombers were called in to destroy the elevator, but even this failed, forcing the Germans to encircle the site and attempts to wear down the defenders over time. With bombs falling from above and mortars and artillery being fired into the side of the structure, inevitably, of course, Polyarkov realized they couldn't hold out forever. On September 21st, the Germans changed tactics and sent a group of Soviet collaborators to attempt to encourage the defenders to surrender, but Polyakov refused, and so the Germans attacked again. On that day alone, the small Soviet garrison killed 30 Germans and wounded 72 more, but Polyakov knew they were on borrowed time, and that night, he and the survivors of his unit made a break for it, 15 of them arriving at Soviet lines on the 24th. The image of the devastated grain elevator in Soviet propaganda became a symbol of Soviet grit and determination in repelling the German invaders. German commanders, both in the field and back at Berlin, were aghast at the ferocity of the fighting in Stalingrad and this newfound Soviet spirit of defiance. Convinced of their superiority in battle, thanks to the tactics of the Blitzkrieg, The Germans fighting in Stalingrad saw themselves going back in time in terms of tactics as they fought a simple battle of attrition between men in such close quarters that bayonets and boot knives were every bit as useful as bullets and grenades. Casualties were high on both sides, albeit higher on the side of the Soviet defenders. And yet given the comparative scale of the two forces, it hurt the Germans more. Observing the reports from the battle, German Chief of Staff Franz Halder warned Hitler of the risk of continuing the battle, at least in its present form, but Hitler would not listen. For him, this had become more than just another battle. It was now a chessboard with him playing one side and Stalin playing the other, and Hitler was determined to win. However, even this obsession could not ignore certain facts regarding the German situation. Casualties in Paulus and Hoth's armies were appalling, and replacements were sorely needed. Tanks were wearing out through a combination of prolonged use and repeated punishment from the Soviets, while artillery units were reporting that barrels of their field guns were wearing out. The Luftwaffe, meanwhile, had been so heavily involved in supporting both the attack on Stalingrad and the charge into the oil fields of the Caucasus region that both its men and their machines were suffering from chronic fatigue. And of course, if all this wasn't enough, the German supply chain was still suffering from frequent interruptions. Many German soldiers resorting to stealing food from the city or even shooting and eating the horses they had brought with them. But Hitler still would not listen and infuriated by Halder's warnings, deriding them as overly pessimistic, he dismissed him on September 24th while Weichs decided that the only thing left to do to shore up Paulus's losses in the city was to redeploy German units covering the northern and southern flanks where the fighting was sporadic to non-existent and have those positions assumed almost entirely with Romanian and Italian units. This was a logical move given the situation. Although many in the German high command were more than a little nervous about relying on these units, The Italians especially, who had time and time again proven to be far inferior to German and many Allied combatants, but there was no other alternative. Convinced of victory, on September 30th, Hitler prematurely declared that the city had all but fallen, when in reality, both Paulus and Hoff's forces were locked in a bitter stalemate with the Soviets, who had now been backed into a nine mile long strip of the city along the Volga. In places, the Germans were so close to the great river that they exchanged direct gunfire with Soviet troops crossing it. But nevertheless, neither Stalin or the Red Army were prepared to abandon what was left of the city, not one step back. Elsewhere, Hitler's forces were encountering similar issues the battle for the Caucasus' oil fields had failed to bear fruit in addressing Germany's oil supply problem. Just like at Stalingrad, the Soviet troops were forced to either hold the land or die trying, slowly bleeding the Wehrmacht to death as they advanced. It is with some irony that probably the biggest inhibitor to the advance Southeast was the growing fuel shortage that seriously hampered Army Group A's armoured columns, slowing them down and allowing the Soviets time to sabotage or destroy any oil fields that were about to fall to the Germans. Instead of endowing the Germans with the lifeblood of their war machine, they were exhausting it fruitlessly. Wondering what von List was up to, Hitler sent his chief of operations staff of the high command, Alfred Lodl, to meet with him. Von List outlined the many problems affecting his army group, and so Lodl returned to the Fuhrer, explaining List was doing the best he could. The Fuhrer disagreed and relieved List of Command, instead assuming command of the army group personally. As the cold of October began to bite, even Hitler was forced to concede that his army would be unable to take the region before winter set in, and so he ordered von Richthofen to undertake a bombing campaign against the oil fields still in Soviet control, beginning on October 8th. If he couldn't have the oil, then neither could Stalin. It was a blow to his plans, but at least he could console himself with the knowledge that his men had all but taken Stalin's city. He had no idea what was coming with the cold weather. In the Soviet Stavka, Marshal Zhukov had been formulating a plan which he believed would drive Paulus and Hoth's armies out of Stalingrad. Simply sending thousands of troops into the ruins wasn't going to cut it, since the Soviets suffered the same problems associated with house-to-house fighting as the Germans. Instead, Zhukov took note of the redeployment of German units from the flanks of the city and realized that now was the time to attempt an encirclement of the city by smashing through these inferior axis units to the north and south. Zhukov dubbed his plan Operation Uranus after the Greek god of the universe who was the great grandfather of Mars, the god of war. The name implied this operation would be all enveloping and to that end, comprised of almost 1 million men, thousands of tanks, and a reconstituted Red Air Force. Given the scale of the offensive, it was an enormous task in itself to keep it secret from the Germans, while the logistics involved meant the date for the offensive was pushed back several times, until finally, on the morning of November 19th, he was ready. In the north, at 720 hours Moscow time, the third Romanian army was suddenly hit by a powerful artillery and rocket barrage from Soviet lines that lasted some 80 minutes. Dazed and battered, the Romanians were then horrified to see the menacing sight of more than 200 T-34 tanks trundling on their position. The Romanians, to their credit, put up a staunch resistance repelling the first wave However, they were insufficiently prepared to keep up such a fight and were soon being pushed back in a disorderly retreat. The next morning, the Soviets' plan became clear to the German high command, as in the south, over a thousand Katyusha rockets blasted a path through the Romanian Fourth Army. Troops filed in to replace the retreating Romanians, moving in a two-pronged formation that bypassed the city before turning north with the Romanian lines on both fronts having completely collapsed and with the German armored units either in combat or immobilized in the city. On November 23rd, the two Russian forces joined up near the town of Kalashi. The Soviet Blitzkrieg had worked. They had encircled and trapped the German 6th Army and elements of the 4th Panzer Army, 265,000 men, including Paulus, but not Hoth, inside the city cutting them off from supplies and reinforcements. However, Paulus knew that at this critical juncture, the encirclement was only true on a map and that he could break out of the city and rejoin the Wehrmacht's main force west of him before the Soviets consolidated their position. However, such a retreat was unthinkable for Hitler, who clung to the notion that once a German soldier had taken up his position, no power could move him. And so he ordered Paulus to remain inside what would thereafter be referred to as the Stalingrad pocket to history and the cauldron to the men who fought there while waiting for a German counter-offensive to relieve them. In the meantime, priority was given to keeping the troops in the Stalingrad pocket resupplied with all land routes cut off. And that meant it was down to the Luftwaffe to airlift in means for Paulus's men to fend off destruction. Estimates made at the time put the bare minimum that needed to be flown in every day in the region of 500 tons of food, fuel, and ammunition, while Paulus himself had asked for 750. Fortunately, several of the captured airfields, including Pitomnik, remained in German hands inside the pockets, but still, the task was enormous. The primary transport type in the Luftwaffe was the Junkers Ju-52, a sturdy, tough, and reliable workhorse that would prove its worth in the coming months, operating from the most austere conditions in the pocket. However, taking into consideration its carrying capacity, the time to fly to Stalingrad and back, and the need for maintenance and repairs due to the punishing treatment they would expect, Luftwaffe analysts estimated they would need at least 10,500 examples of the craft to get anywhere near the level of resupply that would be required only 4,845 were ever built. Head of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Göring, was left with no choice therefore but to divert the already tired and battle-weary bomber units to take part in the resupply effort. This, of course, meant taking them away from offensive operations, such as those against the oil fields, but perhaps even more crucially, also took them away from their vital close air support role. Also being bombers, despite their size, they weren't designed to carry heavy cargo loads and were incapable of carrying certain oversized equipment. Yet despite these problems, Göring assured Hitler that the Luftwaffe could keep Paulus and his men in the fight and pointed out several prior occasions where his men had achieved success in resupplying encircled German units from the air. However, none had ever been conducted on this scale before. And to make matters worse, It was only after this airlift was well underway that one of Goering's staff officers, Hans Jerschenek, realised he had made a mistake, resulting in a figure much higher than the bomber could actually carry. As such, Goering's optimism was unfounded, and yet upon learning of the mistake, both he and the Fuhrer decided to proceed anyway, hoping the men of the Luftwaffe could pull off some miracle. Finally, there was one factor working against the operation which Goering especially, had yet to fully appreciate. Up until now, his men had enjoyed almost total air supremacy against the Red Air Force. And while his fighter pilots were still holding their own, the sheer weight of numbers of aircraft the Soviets were now hurling into the arena was beginning to take its toll. A German ace may have been able to down five Soviet planes in a single fight, but if he was up against 20, then in the grand scheme of things, it simply didn't matter. Despite being heavily outnumbered, the German fighter pilots pushed themselves and their machines to the very brink of collapse, flying every minute of the day they could, only landing to rearm and refuel. Some German fighter pilots were especially motivated to protect the troops on the ground in Stalingrad from the Red Air Force. Kurt Ebner was a fighter pilot who would fly with distinction over Stalingrad while his younger brother fought with the infantry inside the city bringing down 30 Soviet planes in the battle. He fought to spare him and his comrades death at the hands of the Soviets, but it would ultimately prove to be in vain and his brother would never walk out of the ruined city. As the airlift got underway, the results were proving woefully below what was needed with barely 200 tons making it into Potomnik and other crude airships established within the pockets. More bombers were pressed into service in support of the airlift, some attempting to drop supplies onto the German lines. Although in the devastation, it was difficult at times to distinguish German lines from the Soviets. On December 7th, the airlift would reach its zenith. On that day, the Luftwaffe would achieve the highest amount of supplies it would ever and could ever have hoped to achieve. The figure was just 363 tons. Two days later, on December 9th, the Red Air Force went on the offensive and launched a devastating attack on the German base at Tatsinskaya, from where the bulk of supplies were being flown into the Stalingrad pocket. Soviet aircraft had destroyed four German transports, 75 tons of fuel and 6,000 rounds of ammunition destined for the encircled 6th Army. All of those in Hitler's inner circle could see the truth as it was presented on paper. The Luftwaffe couldn't hope to bring in the supplies they needed to keep Paulus and his men alive, while the German fighter pilots had effectively lost control of the air. Furthermore, winter was now in full swing, with even the Volga having frozen over in places, allowing the Soviets to drive trucks of supplies across and into the city for their own men. The question they were left asking now was would Hitler see it the same way and allow Paulus to break out of an impossible situation. On December 18th, Field Marshal Erich von Manstein, commander of the German Army Group Don, which comprised the remaining units of Army Group B, who were fighting the Soviets outside of the pocket and would ultimately be tasked with rescuing Paulus, sent one of his junior officers to meet with the 6th Army Commander and relay the Field Marshal's planned offensive to lift the encirclement. Paulus was informed this would take place in two parts, whereby both the relief force and his own trapped force would fight towards each other in operations dubbed Winter Storm and Thunderclap respectively after which both would form up to create a new front line outside of the city and hold off further Soviet advances during the winter. Winter storm had in fact already begun by the time of the meeting, with German forces having attacked the Soviets on December 12th. Beginning with the standard heavy artillery barrage, the Germans were able to punch a hole through the Soviet lines toward the cauldron, but the Soviets once again fought doggedly to repel the attack and within 24 hours had succeeded in reducing the German advance to a crawl, the Germans simply lacking the troops necessary to decisively knock out the Soviet defenders. Manstein had planned to use an even bigger force with additional panzers, but he was denied these units as it would have meant relocating them from other fronts, leaving those areas vulnerable to Soviet attack. After the meeting, Paulus began to prepare for the breakouts, consolidating what little supplies he had left for the operation, but there was a problem. Manstein had acted without informing Hitler, and when the Fuhrer learned of Thunderclap, he was aghast that it was even being considered by the field marshal. Thus, despite Manstein's pleas, it was vetoed by Hitler, refusing to let any German troops retreat from the Stalingrad pockets, instead expecting Manstein's relief force to fight their way in. As if this were not enough for Manstein, on the day that winter storm began, the Soviets had themselves launched an offensive against the German troops fighting in the Caucasus region. Again, employing the successful tactic of striking at the weaker pro-Axis troops guarding the Germans flanks. Dubbed Operation Little Saturn, the offensive succeeded in routing Italian and Hungarian army and posed a serious threat to his forces further north around Stalingrad, as well as tying up reinforcements and consuming the ever-dwindling supplies available to German forces. Paulus was understandably dismayed at the news of Thunderclap's cancellation, made worse by a fresh Soviet offensive against him a few days later. Manstein's relief force fought on, but was unable to make headway without Paulus's own troops fighting towards them. Manstein again pleaded with Hitler to allow the 6th Army to withdraw, but the Führer stubbornly refused to budge, and so he then made a plea to Paulus to disregard the Führer's instructions and go anyway. Paulus, being the obedient German officer, refused. By December 23rd, Manstein could no longer keep the relief force ahead of the German main line, lest they be encircled and destroyed. And so on December 23rd, he reluctantly ordered them to withdraw back to the main German line. The next night, a new sound echoed through the ruins of the city fighting against the noise of gunfire and the deafening roar of artillery and rocket fire, that of German carol singing. But Christmas brought no respite. More grim news came the next day when the Soviets raided the Tatsinskaya airfield briefly denying its use to the Germans to continue the resupply effort into the pockets, meaning German planes were having to fly further and longer, increasing the danger while reducing the number of overall flights. German physician Kurt Ruber served in the Stalingrad pocket as a medical doctor and later recounted that bleak night for the trapped men. I spent Christmas evening with the other doctors and the sick. We raised our mugs and drank to those we love, but before we had a chance to taste the wine, we had to throw ourselves flat on the ground as a stick of bombs fell outside. I seized my doctor's bag and ran to the scene of the explosions where there were dead and wounded. My shelter, with its lovely Christmas decorations, became a dressing station. One of the dying men had been hit in the head and there was nothing I could do for him. He had been with us at our celebration and had only that moment left to go on duty. But before he went, he said, "'I'll finish the carol first.'" A few moments later, He was dead. There was plenty of hard and sad work to do in our Christmas shelter. It is late now, but it is Christmas night still and so much sadness everywhere. Also being a pastor back home in Germany, Ruber did his best to care for his patient's spiritual needs as well as their physical ones. On the back of a captured Soviet map, he sketched a picture of the Madonna and hung it on the wall of his bunker it becoming something of a shrine to German soldiers looking for a small piece of comfort during a season meant to be about goodwill to all men, even though comfort was a word seldom used by the trapped German forces. In those final days of December, they had become so used to hunger that at times they failed to notice the pains in their stomach, the cold instead distracting them as they huddled up in their defensive positions, trying to find the faintest breath of warmth from their comrades. In December of 1942, leading into January, 1943, supplies in the pocket got so low that on some days, the men received just 200 grams of bread to sustain them as they fought against an unending sea of Soviet troops, pushing them further and further into the city. The need for food and water amongst the German troops would see them resort to some of the cruelest of methods in order to sustain themselves, Any civilian caught with even the most minuscule piece of stale bread could expect to find themselves on the wrong end of a German rifle, while dead Soviet soldiers' bodies were always looted for the most meager of rations. As for water, snow and the Volga itself would have to suffice, but the problem, of course, was the number of Red Army snipers hiding in the rubble and on the opposite bank of the Great River, and with nowhere to hide when collecting the water, many a dehydrated German was left floating lifeless following this desperate bid. Soon, many of the Germans realized that Stalingrad still had one commodity in abundance they could use for collecting the water, orphans. Soviet children in the city were rounded up by German soldiers, some of whom were as young as five or six years old and were promised things like chocolate if they went to the Volga and collected water for them of course the germans had no such luxuries to give but the children trusting in adults did as they were asked dreaming of their rewards when the soviet officers realized what was happening they instructed their snipers to shoot these children as enemies of the soviet union the german airlift by the start of the new year began to collapse the repeated flights in and out of the stalingrad pockets took a terrible toll on both men and machines either breaking from the strain or being whittled down by increasingly heavy fighter resistance. In one instance, a gunner on board a JU-52 transport claimed that after running out of ammunition fending off Soviet fighters, in sheer desperation, he began throwing things towards his attackers, including a roll of toilet paper. However, Soviet fighters weren't truly the biggest threats to the airlift. The winter weather made flying an extremely hazardous affair with the airfields in the pockets having been shut down on numerous days in December and January due to heavy snow, thick ice, and dense fog. Additionally, they were heavily cratered by repeated artillery and rocket bombardments, and with heavy snow falling around them, it was not uncommon for the men trying to keep the airfields open to miss a crater, it being quickly concealed in the flurries. As such, many aircraft landing inside the pocket lost their landing gear after falling into these craters, trapping their crews inside the pockets with the 6th Army. Only the wounded were allowed places on aircraft leaving on the return journey to their bases. However, as Paulus' army was slowly being crushed to death with each passing day, Hitler at least conceded to allow the evacuation of 7,000 German women working with the Wehrmacht medical units inside the pockets, knowing the unspeakable horror that would await them if captured by the Soviets. On January 9th, 1943, the surviving German troops had been squeezed into an ever-shrinking pocket while the German army outside of the encirclement was struggling to hold back the Soviets offensive. And so to everyone except the Fuhrer, the end for Paulus and his troops was clearly in sight. It was at this point the Soviets decided to offer the carrots instead of the stick. Soviet planes rained down thousands of leaflets onto the German troops, which outlined the very favorable treatment they could expect if they accepted the Soviet offer to surrender. The surrender offer stipulated they would not be harmed providing they did not resist. And there was a promise that after the war, the men would be permitted to return to Germany. If that were not enough, they were promised regular rations and that any sick or injured German troops would receive medical attention. However, the Fuhrer had made it clear that no surrender was permitted. And so once again, Paulus fell into line and refused the offer. Consequently, an overwhelming sense of doom seemed to grip every man left fighting for their lives in what was now nothing more than a carcass of a city. They were also left wondering whether they could expect to receive even harsher treatment than usual now that Paulus had rejected the offer. For some, this led them to fight even harder with their last ounces of energy, while others simply gave in to despair. At times, the once ironclad discipline of the Wehrmacht evaporated, leading to insubordination, brawls, and even murder and suicide. Johann Scheinz, a truck driver with the 16th Panzer Division, explained after the war how the men in his units took this opportunity to shoot an officer known for his bullying of the men under his command. On January 15th, Paulus suffered a massive blow when the Soviets not only captured his airfield at Salsk, but also the vital airfield at Pitomnik. Demonstrating the Germans' remarkable efficiency, a new airfield was built at Cherokovo in just two days, but it was hardly a suitable replacement. Not that the Luftwaffe had the aircraft anymore to deliver or even get close to what the traps Germans needed their numbers already reduced from the strain of the airlift the losses amongst the survivors kept mounting with six transports being destroyed in landing accidents inside the pockets on january 20th alone paulus knew at this point it was only a matter of time before the airlift became unsustainable and lamented when the aircraft do not land it means the death of the army in reality of course the german troops were already finished so weakened by the brutal fighting, the bitter cold, and the rampant diseases that flourished inside the city, that from the original force of 265,000 troops, there was, by the middle of January, less than 100,000 left. Even notions of a breakout at this point were pure fantasy. At 1220 hours on January 22nd, 1943, the last JU-52 landed inside the Stalingrad pockets, and the next day, the last flights out by repurposed HG 111s were undertaken. Only Gumrak airfield remained in Paulus's control, but it was rendered unusable before it fell on January 25th. The Luftwaffe continued to attempt to drop supplies to their comrades, but it was less than a trickle of what they needed. Over the course of nearly two and a half months, the airlift, which was needed to bring in a bare minimum of 500 tons of supplies a day, averaged a woeful 114.6 at the cost of 466 aircraft. On January 26th, the German pocket was cut in two by a Soviet attack. And yet, even now, Hitler remained convinced that the German soldiers inside the pocket could pull off a miracle, he being completely detached from reality. On January 30th, 1943, Paulus received shocking news. He had been promoted by Hitler to field marshal and with this news, Hitler reminded him that no German field marshal had ever been captured alive. Some have interpreted this gesture as Hitler still believing that Paulus could hold on to the city. Paulus was not the only one promoted that day, as Hitler had promoted various others and bestowed medals in order to lift the spirits of men who were in a situation where rations were now being denied to the sick and wounded to keep the rest fighting. Others, however, have seen this as Hitler instructing Paulus to commit suicide before the end, for the German army to save face. Paulus certainly interpreted it this way and reportedly said to his staff, I have no intention of shooting myself for this Bohemian corporal. By this time, some German officers were already taking it upon themselves to end the madness, such as one general who ordered his troops to expend all of their ammunition, making any further resistance impossible, forcing them to surrender. Then on January 31st at midday, Paulus's own position was overrun and he was taken prisoner. The field marshal surrendered his staff, but left it to his own men to decide their fates. The last organized groups finally giving up on February 2nd, 1943, bringing an end to the Battle of Stalingrad. 265,000 Germans and Axis troops were trapped inside the Stalingrad pocket only 91,000 would emerge to go into Soviet captivity, where they were subjected to such brutal treatment that only around 6,000 would survive the war. A small number continued to hide in the ruins of Stalingrad for months afterwards, including many of those Soviet prisoners who volunteered to fight with the Germans against Stalin. For these troops, there was no future, and so very few of them were taken alive in the Soviet mop-up efforts. While sources vary on the exact figure, In all, the battle for the city resulted in some two million casualties, making it one of the bloodiest in history. Paulus himself was held by the Soviets until 1953. And even then, he was returned to West Germany, which had become a communist ally of the Soviet Union against the West. For both sides, the fight for the city had become more than one for territory. It had come to encapsulate the war in the East itself, a war where neither side gave any quarter and the true horrors of combat were realized in their many, many forms. For Germany, it marks the beginning of the end for Hitler's 1,000-year Reich, as the road was now open for Stalin's army to bathe Eastern Europe in red. And in just over two years, rather than a swastika flying over the ruins of Stalin's city, the hammer and sickle was instead flapping over the burned-out ruins of Berlin.